0: If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, well, today we are talking, let me just ask you, first off, to give me um, a half hour, I know that the reason why you're here at church is uh, to to worship God and to hear from God, and what I want to do is I want to ask you to just to hear me out for the next uh, 35 or so minutes, as we talk about probably one of the most important subjects, and the way I want you to listen is I want you to engage. I want you to maybe even take notes, write questions, think about what I'm saying, run it through um, your worldview and all all of these things, because what we're talking about today is the judgment of God and evil existing in the world. If you're first time here at church, if someone just invited you, um, welcome to church. Uh, (laughs) This is probably the most difficult uh, passage in the entire Bible, one of the most... Definitely one of the most dark passages in the scriptures. And it's basically God saying, I regret or I'm sorry that I made man, and I'm going to blot him out on the earth. And so let me read and pray and ask God for strength and help and wisdom, and that God will give us ears to hear and hearts of faith to receive what God is speaking here. Let's pray. Well, actually, let me read and I pray. Verse 1, and when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of, his, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the, of the heavens, and I'm, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask you for strength and for help today. I, I really want to speak about you and your word with clarity. I pray that you would speak louder than my words. I can speak to ears, only you can speak to hearts, God. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, faith to receive. I, I know that it's, it's a huge leap of faith to say, to, to go to your word with a, with a passage like this and apply faith here. I know it's difficult, and I pray that you would give us that gift of faith, that you would grant that to us. I pray that we would think through um, this subject of evil, and we would not just pass it off as a, a reality out there, and that we don't have to deal with it. Please keep us from being that naive. I pray that you would give us hope in the gospel of Jesus, and that's why we gather, Lord. We come, we've come to hear from you, God. So would you speak? Would you anoint me? I need your help desperately, God. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen amen. We started this book of Genesis some weeks ago, and if you've read through the narrative, I've kind of encouraged you guys, if you guys get the bulletin that we email, email out every Friday, I've encouraged you guys to get um, or, or start to read uh, the narrative of Genesis, especially as it pertains to the flood narrative. It's important that you understand the narrative and how it flows and how it moves forward. If you have read chapters 1 through 11, you'll find is that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 move with speed and selectiveness. Chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis move with speed and selectiveness. It moves very fast. Chapters 1 through 11 are very broad brushstrokes. By the end of chapter 4, we have the building of a city. End of chapter 4, we have the building of a city. And in, in chapter 5, we have this huge genealogy. I mean, the Bible just started. Where did all these people come from? If you read it, you're like, wait, 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 wait. Where did Cain go? To what city? Who did he marry? Why are all these people here? The scriptures, at least in the first few chapters of Genesis, are very selective. Unless it moves the narrative forward, and the point the author is trying to make is move forward by the narrative, it's, it's not even mentioned. And so chapters 1 through 11, there's four huge movements of, and I would say, of evil that God focuses in on to move the narrative of what he's doing forward. And then in chapter 12, it just slows down to a halt as God calls Abraham and the journey of faith that Abraham is a part of. But if you're looking at Genesis 1 through 11 and you're asking, well, why does the the narrator take things out or leave things in? What is the flow? What exactly is the movement of the narrative in the opening chapters of the Bible? What is the story that's being told here? The scholar N.T. Wright maintains that the Old Testament as a whole was written to give us both much less and much more than the set, a set of dogmas and ethics. He says in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, that it was written to give us, the Old Testament was written to give us more than a progressive revelation in the unfolding of who God is. The Old Testament, he says, isn't written in order to simply tell us about God in the abstract not written to provide information to satisfy our inquiring mind. He writes, The Old Testament was written to tell us the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. That's what the Old Testament is for. It's what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. That is what moves the narrative of Genesis 1-11 through and on forward. See, the topic of evil is a topic every one of us has to deal with. Every single person in here has to deal with this problem of evil. And what do you do with evil? What do you do philosophically and practically about war and genocide, about child molestation, about corporate greed, about rape and murder, about addiction and crime, about slavery and kidnapping? See, on some level... Everyone has to deal with these problems intellectually, philosophically, spiritually. We have to deal with these things. We have to to form some sort of belief, some standard of justice in our minds about the problem of evil. And Christopher Wright argues in his book, The God I Don't Understand, he says, and I think this is true, he says, Christians, for the Christian, especially for the Christian, the Christian has the most difficult problem on every level of evil. The Christian has a problem with, with evil on every single level. Why is this? Well, Christians believe that there is one living God, the creator of the whole universe, who is personal and good and loving and omnipotent and sovereign over all that happens. God is love, God is good. God is omnipotent, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's sovereign over everything that happens. And when you believe this, everyone in here knows logically, if you believe this, then you cannot help but have a massive problem with the existence of evil. If I believe in a God who is completely good and completely sovereign over every event that happens, and there is evil, I have a problem with evil. Many of us in here have heard this probably from a skeptic friend Maybe we've even had this thought ourselves. I have. And the thought goes like this. How can you believe in the existence of a God who is both loving and omnipotent in a world filled with evil and suffering? Those two things are not compatible. Either God is all-powerful, so he could prevent all suffering. If he is all-powerful, really, if he is all-powerful, he could prevent all human suffering. He can prevent all evil, but since he obviously doesn't, he cannot be loving. He's sick. He's playing a sick joke on us. Or maybe God is all-loving, and he would prevent all evil and suffering if only he could, but he can't, in which case he cannot be all-powerful. So you can't have both. And this is what many people maintain. But if you read the Scriptures, if you read through the Bible, the Scriptures teach that God is indeed all-powerful and all-loving at the same time. It maintains that there is a great evil in this world. And this, what the Bible proclaims, is that there is a great evil in this world. And that's from the opening chapters of the Bible. But what the Bible teaches is that this all-powerful, all-loving God is bent on putting everything right once again. C.S. Lewis has famously said in Mere Christianity, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. How does God put wrongs right? How does God put evil right? And how does he use us to be a part of that? What does God do about the presence of evil? And I believe that this text today addresses this and one of the darkest passages in the entire Bible. And I want to look at it under three parts. The first part is this, what God saw, the second movement, second part is how God felt, and lastly, what God did. What God saw when He looked on the earth at this time, how God felt, which is a very interesting subject, and what God did about it. First, what God saw. It says in our text in Genesis chapter 6 that when, it says that when God saw the earth, he said he saw the the wickedness on the earth. Remember our study in the last couple weeks, Cain and Abel, when God came to Cain and he said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain goes, whoa, 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 wait, am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me? I don't know. I don't really care. And then God says this, after Cain murdered his brother in the field and left him there to die and buried his body, he said, you're the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood, the innocent blood of your brother whom you murdered is crying out to me from the ground. There's an outcry. Whenever there is an injustice on this world, it cries out to God. It cries out injustice. It cries out violence to God. And it pierces God's ear where God cannot ignore it. God cannot shut that part of himself off. He hears the cry of injustice, and he must act. God cannot ignore evil. God cannot ignore injustice. Actually, in a very, very famous passage that we'll get to next year, in Genesis chapter 19, it's almost the end of the year, so give me, cut me some slack. Next year, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God tells Abraham, I'm going to go and judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry against it. That city has been crying out to me, injustice, violence, sexual perversity, injustice, violence. It's crying out to me, and I cannot ignore it. God cannot ignore evil. God cannot ignore injustice. The action of God against injustice and evil is called judgment. And I know I know in this town, it's a very unpopular subject. I know that people don't like to hear about the judgment of God. But if we were to take the Bible seriously, and we do here God is a God of judgment. God is a God of judgment because God is just. God is just. And He must judge evil. He must judge wickedness. He must judge violence. God cannot ignore injustice. He cannot let it go because all sin is sin against God first. God is always the most offended party when you sin. Always. It's like the blood and the damage that is left in the wake of evil, wickedness, and injustice cries out to God for justice, and He must do something. Everyone in the Bible assumes this, and so the cry to God is How long, O Lord? Until you judge the wicked. How long, O Lord, must the innocent suffer? How long, O Lord, until you strike down the wicked in judgment? So what is this great wickedness that God sees in Genesis chapter 6? Well, it's one of the most confusing and debated verses in the entire Bible. And it goes something like this, and I highlighted all the fun parts for you. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, it's highlighted, saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now you have to understand this narrative flow here is why God is about to flood the earth. Because the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took their wives, they took for their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his day shall be hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, that's highlighted. We're on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Some of your Bibles have that translated giants. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The questions that pop into our mind when we read this, especially for students of the Bible, is who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim, translated giants or fallen ones? Why is it so bad that these sons of God took human women and had sex with them and bore children together? Why is that so bad? Well, there are three possible interpretations, and I want to give you all three of them. There are three, I guess, popular interpretations. The first is this, and I want to share all of them with you, because I don't know where you land. You might land on one of these. The first one is this, the godly and ungodly bloodlines. The sons of God, this, in, this uh, interpretation goes, were the, line, the godly line of Seth. Those were the sons of God. And the daughters of man were the line of Cain, which was the ungodly line. Thus, the sin here was intermarriage between ungodly and godly people, and that's why God judges the world. This text does teach that there was a breakdown in marriage, and some suggest that with the context of the previous chapter, with speaking of all the genealogy in chapter 5, this actually fits contextually. That's one translation and one interpretation. The second one, that the sons of God were rulers, quote, kings or rulers, and they were taken harems. The sons of God were powerful rulers who imposed either the right of first night on their city or town, which basically means when someone gets married, the king has the right of first night to sleep with the first bride before the husband does. And these rulers did that. And they also took harems. They married whoever they wanted to. So the sin here was polygamy that God judges. Again, a breakdown in marriage. Some suggest that this fits best contextually since chapter 3 is the fall of humanity Chapter 4 is the fall of the family with Cain and Abel. And chapter 6 is the fall of society, thus constituting the judgment of God. The third interpretation, I think the funnest one, is fallen angels. The sons of God, this interpretation goes, were fallen angels that demonized powerful rulers of that day, and they had sex with women. And the Nephilim, which literally means fallen ones, were their offspring. This interpretation gains very uh, a lot of strength in the Old Testament, since this phrase "sons of God" is used in Job and Psalms. It means angels. This interpretation also has some strength in the New Testament, in Jude. And write this down. This is very interesting. In Jude chapter six, and Second Peter two four, Jude six, Second Peter two four, which talk about how God judged the earth with a flood due to fallen angels who are now imprisoned. Very interesting text. You should read it and have fun with that. This is also the oldest and most historic view. For me personally, I've changed my view on this about four times in the last 10 years. Three of those times have been the last six months. Right now, I think I fall more on the fallen angel perspective, but don't necessarily hold me to that. Wherever you land, and I know it's really hard to land on one of these translations because no commentator agrees, not a single one. The two of the most reputable commentators will not agree on this interpretation. But all of them do agree on this. There is a reason why God is judging the earth, and this is why. No matter what, what, what you interpret the Nephilim or the sons of God to be, this is the reason why God was judging the earth, and this is why. And this is how the narrative reads. What was happening with the sons of God was, the, was following the exact same pattern. Of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 6, you had the sons of God. It says, they saw that the daughters were attractive, which is the word good, and they took. They saw it was good. They interpreted for themselves what was good, and they took whomever they wanted. Genesis 3 reads like this. Eve saw that the fruit was good, and she took. The same narrative flow, the same pattern. Saw that the that humanity determined what was good they we determined what was attractive we lustfully apart from god's word apart from god's bath apart from god's will took what we want that's what it, that's how it reads this sort of rebellious attitude and spirit permeated the entire landscape of humanity it permeated everything every single heart on the planet at this time was only evil continually there was not a good thought thought in any heart the result was this in 6 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It's progressively evil. The heart, in the Hebraic sense here, was the seat of the emotions, understanding, and the will. Basically, it, it, it comprised the whole inner life of a person. And this imagery is actually very vivid. It means that even the reflections of fantasy, when people daydreamed during this time, when they rose up in their day and they had movements of the will, they were only evil continually. See, sin here had reached critical mass. There was physical violence with Cain and and Lamech. There was corruption. There was possibly this demonic sexual perversion all the way down to the intention of every heart was evil. So we come to the first question. How does God see evil? How does God feel about evil? God hates evil because it hate, He hates what it does to His creation. But how did God feel? Okay, so if you're still listening to me right now after that last point, would you please listen to me now? Because I'm, I'm I want to talk about something here that isn't often addressed. This is not even often addressed even in our own hearts. We don't think this way. We don't naturally think this way. It took me through a series of being at the most hurt I've ever been by another human person to actually get me to think this way. It wasn't the reason why that happened, I don't believe, but through it, I understood this point. point, point two, how did God feel? The way that this reads in Hebrew, which is picked up also in our English translation, is that man's evil heart is pointedly meant to stand in contrast to God's grieving heart it's the same word man's heart was evil and god's heart was grieving man's heart was evil always only thinking evil thoughts no matter what and god's heart was broken god's heart was was grieving Man's heart was getting more and more evil. Every intention from buying and selling to marrying someone to farming was only evil continually. Even when there was a good, something good like marriage, man's heart corrupted it. Whenever there was something good like church, like friendship, like the environment, like nature, man's heart thoroughly corrupted it. And their hearts were evil continually. No one sought after God. No one's heart was looking to God for dependence no one's heart was seeking God for love, and God's heart was grieving. The word grieved is the, has the same Hebrew verbal root as Eve's birth pangs, as Adam's pain when he works the ground. When it says God's heart, heart grieved, it's the same root word as when Eve would, would bear children with pain, and Adam would work the ground with pain and toil. You know what this means? This means that God feels our sin as well. Our sin affects God. God has wrapped himself up so closely with his creation that when they sin, his heart breaks. We don't often think about this. When we sin, our first question is never, what did that do to God? We always think, how is God gonna punish me for that sin? That's normally how we think if we give a thought to God when we sin. No one thinks, what does this do to God's heart who made me, who loves me? What does this do to God? It says here that God's heart was broken. This is a very, very strange point, and I think we often miss it. When God sees the hearts of humanity as only evil all the time, it doesn't say that God gets angry. It doesn't say here that God starts... Slinging lightning bolts from heaven. He's like, Oh, I'm so mad. You, poof, you, poof. Like, he starts doing that. He doesn't do that. The first instance of, God, of sin running rampant, it's, his heart is breaking. Have you ever read through the scriptures, poured over the Bible, and realized how much God lets human beings affect him? Have you ever read through the Psalms? Have you ever read through the, the major prophets? And realized how much God lets humanity affect Him. The opening chapters of Genesis are all about the problems of relationship between humanity and God. God who desperately loves us and wants to be loved by us. See, sometimes when we pray and we read the Scriptures, we ask questions like, Why is God so unfair? Why does God seem so silent? Why does God seem so distant? And what we're really asking is, why is God unfair to me? Why is God silent with me? Why is God hidden from me? Have you ever read this passage from God's point of view? Have you ever read the Bible from God's point of view? Have you ever tried? I know due to sin, we're so inward bent that we always think of ourselves, but have you ever gave thought to God? what your disobedience does to God. Here is humanity that he created, that God has given choice and personhood to at this point in the narrative that humanity has that he's created finally has turned against him to where every intent of their heart was only evil always. Have you ever had someone that you deeply love betray you? Have you ever had someone who you trust and love do evil against you? When that happens to your life, do you not grieve? Does it not grieve you to the point of near depression? Doesn't the world seem dark? Doesn't the world seem like there is nothing good in this world? Nothing could make me happy. Nothing. Do you think that you're the only one that feels that way? There's a time in my life where I was deeply hurt by someone I loved. I was so hurt that I thought that God had betrayed me. I thought, God, you saw this happen. Why didn't you stop it? And it was during this period of my life that I began to search the Scriptures and study for the first time in my life how God feels. And I was struck as I read through the Old Testament narrative, especially the Psalms, how much God has let humanity affect Him. And I came to the point where I realized that God was more hurt over this sin than I was. If I, could, I couldn't even wrap my mind around Like, God, you're as grieved as I am about this. See, we always think of God being all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, and therefore incapable of any emotion. God is emotionless as if we are the only ones capable of feeling emotion, but we forget that we were made in the image of God. Herman Melville said, and the author of Moby Dick's wrote in a letter, he said, the reason the mass of men fear God and at the bottom dislike Him is because they rather distrust His heart and fancy Him, all brain, like a watch. I think most of us think of God like a watch. He's all mechanics, He's strict law of action and reaction. If you do good, he likes you. If you do bad, he doesn't like you. And he punishes you. End of story, that is God. But that is not God. In Ezekiel, it says, God does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not zap the wicked and go, yes, I got him off the planet. That was awesome. Yay me. He doesn't do that. He does not rejoice. He does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. And the grief... The pain that God feels here in Genesis chapter 6, the regret, it says that God was sorry. Regret grips his heart. It does not mean that God admits to making some cosmic mistake. He's not like going, oh my gosh, I totally messed up on this. What it means is this. It means that action must be taken. He has moved forward in action. God takes steps and he has to take grievous steps to stop evil, to stop evil in its tracks but because God is sovereign and He's a sovereign creator, He will find a way of working through and out the other side to fulfill His purpose, which He intends for creation. So, He judges the world, but He saves one family. So, it says, but Noah found favor. That word is grace in the eyes of the Lord. Finally, what did God do? This is what God saw. That's how God felt, but what did God do about it? Now, back to this question, that we begin with. What does God do about evil? See, God washes away sins, and we all love that about God. That's God's job. God's job is to forgive sins. My job is to sin. It's a great relationship. Like, I sin, He forgives sins. We get along great. We all love the fact that God washes away sins. But here, God not only washes away sins, He washes away sinners and we don't like that. It's like, God, you can wash away sins, but just don't flood out sinners. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's not fair. But God here judges. And this is the bottom line. Whether that's, I know that's, that's a hard message to swallow. God is a God of judgment, but He is. The root word to blot out, God will blot out man, It means literally to erase by washing. See, evil must be judged and judged severely. God has made a beautiful world. We started this in Genesis 1 and 2. God has made a beautiful world. We experience it. We get glimpses of this beautiful world at at, at a birth of a child, like last night's sunset. You get glimpses of the beauty in God's creation. God has made a beautiful world. Evil as we see it, especially in this stage in Genesis 6 of human history, is a defacing of that world. It's an unraveling of that world. Judgment, as we know it here in Genesis 6, is all about God stopping evil in its tracks before it gets too far. God says that's enough evil. God is eradicating evil. God is judging evil. But let me skip ahead really fast with you. Because you guys all know the story of Noah and the ark. Noah builds a boat to save his family and the animals and the birds. But as Noah's family gets on, and then the animals get on, and then the creeping things get on, and the birds get on the boat, something else gets on the boat as well. Sin and evil get on that boat. Because as soon as the boat finds dry land, Noah gets drunk and naked. But nobody talks about that in Sunday school. (laughs) We do, by the way. (laughs) Then Noah's descendants build a tower in human arrogance to overthrow the rule of God and make a name for themselves. Then God calls a family to carry forward His promise of the future. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, who would have the, the, the children of Israel, the family of Israel... But as that carries along as well, if you've ever read the Old Testament, this family is very, very flawed as well, and they rebel. And what what the narrative carries throughout the entire Old Testament is that evil remains in the human heart. Physical evil is judged, but evil carries over in the human heart. So throughout the Old Testament, you have this tension of God judging even His own people, and God-loving even pagan people. God is saving. God is smiting. All to contain evil, restrain evil, the tension remains. But then there's this promise, there's this hint in Ezekiel chapter 36 of a new thing that God's going to do. He's actually going to take out this heart of stone that rebels and put into humanity a new heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. See, this is a different kind of flood altogether. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you, that I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the source of evil, which at this point is the human heart. So this tension of the love of God and the power of God and the presence of evil all remains. But there's this hint, this promise as it moves into the New Testament of an event that will happen where God will change our hearts. And if you've been at this church for any length of time, you know that happened in Jesus. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the tension of the love of God the power of God and the presence of evil climaxes with the crucifixion of Jesus. At the cross of Christ, evil is seen in the wickedness of man, killing the Son of God. Here is the Son of God, full of grace and truth, peace, righteousness, speaking love and peace and reconciliation, healing the broken and the sick, redeeming them, and we kill him. Evil but you also see the sovereignty of God at the cross. Because from the very beginning, Jesus has been saying, I'm going to the cross. Nobody takes my life. I give it freely. It's the sovereignty of God that Jesus was on that cross. But you also see the love of God because it was Jesus on that cross and not you and not me. So what does God do about evil? God absorbs it in his son. He takes it upon himself. He takes the pain, the penalty of our sin. And through this strange story of the crucified son of God, peace is made and we are renewed. We are given a new heart. You and I are renewed and evil is eradicated in our hearts. But I know know some people are thinking, okay, this is such a Christian thing like our hearts, our our, our clans, all this other stuff, but there's evil that remains on this earth. I'm still capable of evil things. Revelation chapter 21. John the Revelator, coolest name ever, (laughs) said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven, the first heaven, the first earth passed away. And then he says this comment, and there was no more sea. Surfers get bummed at this verse. People that sail and do things on the ocean, scuba divers and stuff like that, they get bummed. What does this mean? There is no more sea. In Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the sea. This meant chaos. In Genesis chapter 6 through 8, God floods the earth, and he makes the sea rise to destroy everything, chaos, judgment evil. In Exodus, the children of Israel were backed up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go. In the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation, during the time of the Great Tribulation, these prophets write of these monsters who would make war against the people of God, and they would come out of the sea. Throughout the entire Bible, the sea is a picture of darkness, fearsome place, that evil emerges, and it always threatens God's people, Always. So when Jesus calms the sea, the disciples flip out. It says in in Mark's narrative, they're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. Because who is this that can calm the ocean? Chaos, darkness. What it means is this, there is a day coming in the new heavens and the new earth when God will do away with evil completely where God will do away with chaos completely. Well, God will eradicate all evil, make all wrongs right, not just in our hearts, but on this earth. God judges evil. He triumphs over evil. And in this very peculiar story, that the Bible tells, he does it through his son. And as I studied this this last week and over the last several months, but especially this last week, I was preparing this sermon, the thing that, I was gripped with was my own sin. Like Psalm 130 says, if, O Lord, if, oh Lord, you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Thinking about my proclivity, my heart to turn good things into wicked things, to, to bend inward on myself, to, to take a relationship, something as good as marriage and make it wicked. Something as good as beauty and make it wicked. Something as good as nature and make it wicked. Something as good as friendship and make it wicked. When I think about my own heart and the proclivity I have to make things good, wicked, I was very, very convicted. But this morning as I was meditating on this, I was reminded of what John Newton, the famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace said, who was a slave trader. He said at the end of his life, after Christ radically saved him, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Jesus Christ, who took our sin, our shame, our the violence that was due to us, the evil that is in our hearts, who took all that on himself, offers us a new heart offers us a new life, and is setting this world right. And what we now become a part of is, are these kingdom people who are part of God's plan, as Spurgeon said, who are making the wrongs right. But the first thing, first thing that has to be made right is our own hearts. And that happens through confession, repentance, and celebrating communion let's do that as we worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the, the attention of this church this morning. I pray, God, that our attention was towards you. And Lord, I stand here, and I don't, I don't, I don't stand here as one who's holier than thou, Lord. Um, as the Apostle Paul said, I, I really feel like the, the chief of sinners. Like John, John Newton said, I, I am a, a great sinner, but Christ, you are a great Savior. I pray that you would receive glory today by sinners coming to Jesus, by people who are evil in and of themselves. Yes, Lord, you can judge evil, and if you judge evil, we would be judged right there with evil. We all know it. No one, no one in this room can stand before you and say, I'm innocent. We all know that. We need your forgiveness, God. So would you bring that now? as we worship you, as, as we rejoice in what Christ has done. In Jesus' name, amen.